0: Continue our study of the life of Christ. Now, tonight I'm going to do something I haven't done thus far in this study. I'm only going to focus on one of the Gospels. Usually I try to read all, th- all, all the Gospels that show a story for comparison purposes, but I knew tonight uh, with this particular topic I wasn't going to have time. So we're just going to focus on Mark. Occasionally I'll make reference to uh, Matthew and Luke's accounts, but tonight we're going to be studying about the Gerasene demoniac. <laughs> Let's just put it, let me uh, give a better title for that. The time when the demons got thrown into the pigs. That's the story you're going to remember, or that's the part of the story you're going to remember. This, uh, this particular uh, h- miracle occurs in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We are going to emphasize Mark's tonight because it is the longest of the three accounts, um, and it'll be the focus of our attention. Uh, but we have not spent much time in this particular series dealing with exorcisms performed by Jesus. Um, we did make uh, some uh, points from the first exorcism that's mentioned in the Gospels, and that was the exorcism of a, a man in Capernaum at the synagogue. And we did talk about that briefly, but we have not spent much time on Jesus and his interactions with demons. So tonight, that this story will... Um, allow us to deal with some of that. Let's start by reading the account from Mark, beginning in verse 1 of Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Now, this is one of six occasions that Jesus cast out a demon. The first one I referenced a moment ago, it occurred in the Capernaum synagogue. You can see it particularly in Mark chapter 1. And that was the first occasion that Jesus cast out a demon, chronologically speaking. This one, the one where the, the demon is cast into a herd of pigs, is the chronological second time Jesus cast out a demon. The third time is only recorded in Matthew's account. And it was a man who was made mute by an unclean spirit, and Jesus cast out that demon as well. The fourth occasion involves the Canaanite or Syrophoenician woman's daughter. Jesus was in this uh, unique area on a trip, and this woman came up to him asking him to cast out the demon from his daughter. And it's the occasion where he said that, I'm sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And she says, with the breadcrumbs, you know, that whole thing. So this is the fourth occasion that Jesus cast out a demon. Fifth is what I call the post-transfiguration boy. When Jesus came down from the Mount of transfiguration, there's this boy who has an unclean spirit that causes him to have seizures, and his father comes to the apostles asking them to cast out the demon. The apostles can't do it, so Jesus has to intervene, and Jesus casts out that demon. And there is a sixth one that does not read like a demon possession or a casting out of a demon. But there is this woman with a disabling spirit. Some classify this as an exorcism because Jesus heals this woman. It is not, uh, but the language of disabling spirit gives the impression that it could involve demon possession, but it does not necessarily specifically refer to it as a demon-involved situation. So there, were, there are five, possibly six, demon possession episodes in the ministry and career of Jesus. And this one that we're talking about tonight, the garrison demoniac, is the second one. Now, one thing I like to point out when we start talking about demon possession is that it is usually classified differently than a healing. When you read through Jesus' ministry and you read through the verses that reference Uh, the things Jesus did, you will have a category for healing the sick and you'll have a category for casting out the demons. What's interesting is that occasionally a casting out of a demon situation also involves the healing of an individual. So let me show you what I mean. If you were to go to Mark chapter 1 and go to verse 34, we're told that Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons. He healed many who were sick, and he cast out many demons. They're categorically identified as two separate things. A similar statement appears in Matthew chapter 10 and verse eight, where Jesus instructed the apostles after he commissioned them to go out on a, a, a ministry tour, go out on a campaign. And he said that he's empowered them to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Categorically, heal the sick and cast out demons are two separate things, but many demon possessions did cause medical problems. So, in Matthew chapter nine, there was this guy who's demon oppressed and mute because of it. In um, Mark chapter seven, excuse me, Matthew chapter seventeen and Mark chapter nine, we read about that boy after the transfiguration who has an unclean spirit and, and it causes seizures and it causes him also to be mute potentially even to be deaf, because Mark uh, cites Jesus as saying, you mute and deaf spirit. So there are physical um, medical manifestations involved in some demon possessions, even in the guy that we're dealing with tonight, uh, who's the demon is going to be cast into the herd of the pigs. He's causing this guy um, to be uncontrollable. But more importantly, he's causing this guy to cut himself. Now, that's not so much a a physical malady, but it is causing some mental malady. So it's just worth noting that there is this overlap sometimes in the way the demons manifest themselves in the lives of these individuals that causes them to have uh, physical, emotional, mental conditions happening. So I think that's worth mentioning that they're categorically two different things, but they can manifest themselves as physical conditions. And there are a couple of times where Jesus, in the process of casting out the demon, we're told he also healed the individual. Uh, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 24, we're told that those oppressed by, uh, that Jesus was, um, they brought, that the people brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. There is a comparison of healing involved. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 16, we're told that Jesus encountered that boy who, who, after the transfiguration, was having seizures. And we're told that Jesus rebuked the demon. It came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. That It almost seems like sometimes that Jesus will not only cast out the demon, but there's a healing that he does too. There are two categorically referenced different things, but there is a manifestation involved Uh, of some on occasion some physical issues. Now that's more than you really probably care to know about demon possession at this point. Let's dive into the story and what's interesting is when we dive into this account we have to deal with two controversies, two quote-unquote controversies right off the bat. What I mean by that is the uh, the gospel accounts Vary on a couple of details in the story and I want to acknowledge them and um, And and explain their presence to some degree the first controversy has to do With the name of the community in which this exorcism took place so if you look um, At at your gospel accounts if you look between Matthew Mark and Luke if you change translations you're going to see different terminologies The three names found in the ancient Greek manuscripts. Now, I'm quoting someone. The three names found in the ancient Greek manuscripts. That means the Greek manuscripts from which we develop our New Testament, they don't all match on the name of the location. There is variation in the textual evidence that we have. This is one of those things we talked about um, nearly a year ago. Uh, with the class that I conducted in here on how we got the Bible, that manuscripts sometimes have variations between them. This is one of those instances. The three names found in the ancient Greek manuscripts for this location are Gerasenes, Gadarenes, and Gergesenes. Now, these names refer to three different places, and I want to kind of walk through those with you for a moment. There is the, uh, the term Gerasau. G e r a s a, Gerasa. It's a reference to the region of the Gerasenes, and that's the terminology I even technically use for the title of this lesson, and that you'll notice most generally used. But you'll see that terminology used in Mark chapter five and verse one, if you're using the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, and the New International Version. You will also find the terminology of the Gerasenes in Luke chapter eight and verse twenty-six if you're using those same translations. Now, Gerasol was the, one of the cities of the Decapolis. Now, of course, you know what the Decapolis is, right? Now, the Decapolis is a region on the eastern side of the Jordan River, primarily, that was made up of ten Gentile cities that were— or 10, I shouldn't say Gentile— ten cities that were given independence from the uh, Palestinian region, from Israel and Galilee. They were independently run. Uh, under the Roman government. and Decapolis uh, is, is the terminology that referenced the fact that there were ten of those cities, and, and Gerasau was one of those. It's not in Galilee, it's not in Judea, it's not in Samaria. It's in the Decapolis, in this region on the eastern side of the river um, that was independent of those other regions. The problem with Gerasau, though, the problem with this location, is that it's not even close to the Sea of Galilee. It's like 30-something miles from the Sea of Galilee. I think I've got a picture of it. If you look at the screen here, you can see the Sea of Galilee up at the top, uh, in that region, and Gerasa. it's way down here, not even close, not even close. Which, by the way, it's this region, that's the Decapolis, as you can see on the map, so Gerasa is, is, is a problematic as a translation simply because of its location. It could not possibly be the exact location of where this was because, think about it. Think, think about the story. The herdsmen witnessed the pigs run off into the Sea of Galilee right there on the spot. They're not going to see pigs go into the Sea of Galilee from Gerasa. Not only that, they're going to run into town and, and tell everybody about it. And then come back. And so even if they were on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, they're not running to Gerasa and back in one day. So it, it doesn't fit contextually. But it is the term used in some manuscripts of the, the Gospel of Mark and Luke in particular. And so it's retained in some translations. There is, you can see another uh, name on the screen, Gadara, G-A-D-A-R-A. Uh, some translations use the term country of the Gadarenes. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 28 is, one of the pa- is the passage that you'll find this term in the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, and the New International Version. The phrase country of the Gadarenes appears in Mark chapter 5 and verse 1, in the King James Version and the New King James Version. And in Luke chapter 8 and verse 26, country of the Gadarenes is used in the New King James Version and in the King James Version. You see, this gets complicated because now we have different terms based on translations and different terms based on books of the Bible. (laughs) So it gets a little complicated. Gadara was another city of the Decapolis. It was located about five to six miles southeast of the Sea of Galilee. So it's not necessarily on the Sea of Galilee, but it's only five or six miles off of it. So think in terms of this. Uh, I should also mention that some of the region that it owned, some of, the, some, of the, some of the land that belonged to the city, did reach to the Sea of Galilee. So it did, ha- as far as a town, it did have connections to the sea. And uh, the, the pig herdsmen could easily have run from the Sea of Galilee to the town and back in one day. We're talking 10 to 12 miles total. Now, I'm not running that very fast. But that kind of trip for, for a, a, a people who walk for a lifestyle, that's not going to be that difficult to make that round trip in a single day. So Gadara, location-wise, does not pose as much of a problem as Gerasau did. But the problem with Gadara is there is no steep hills down to the Sea of Galilee on this southeastern coast where Gadara is. So here's another uh, image. Gadara is, you can see, located down here, five or six miles off the Sea of Galilee, but the steep cliffs aren't there. You can kind of see it's mountainous through here, but this, you can see how these, get right, these uh, mountainous regions get right up against the sea. These pull back because of uh, a river that's flowing into the Sea of Galilee in that region. So Gadara has a... Geographical issue as well, not with this physical location, but with the terrain. It's possible that Gadara still, though, could have been um, the correct location for this event, just because uh, it's in the vicinity of the Sea of Galilee and, and such. But then we have this other region mentioned in the New King James and King James translation of Matthew chapter 8 and verse 28. New King James and King James in Matthew tw- 8, 28 uses the phrase country of the Gergesenes. Now, you might be able to notice that I've got Gerges, that Gerges is listed up here on the eastern coast of the Sea of Galilee, uh, and much more northerly than Gadara. And if you pay attention, you can see that this uh, mountainous area here gets very close to the Sea of Galilee, get to Gergesa. Now, there really, it's interesting because that's labeled Gergesa, but there is no known towns with this name. <laughs> that makes it more complicated. However, there's this guy back in the uh, uh, late 2nd century, early 3rd century, his name was Origen. Origen was an influential Christian theologian during that time period, and he advocated for this translation, Gergesa. Now, it's not known if Origen was reading that from actual manuscripts or if he kind of pushed it into manuscripts. You don't have—you know, you, we have manuscripts from this time period that Origen lived— But he could have influenced the terminology in those manuscripts, if if you get what I'm saying. Or he may have actually had manuscripts at his disposal that use this terminology. What gets even more interesting, though, is that there is a known community where Gergesa is pictured on this map called Kursi or Kursa. And it's believed by some that that's the correct name for this location— in one language, and Gergesa was its name in another. Kursa and Gergesa. They're not horribly far apart, and so it leaves some to think that Kursa uh, is the location, and it's another name for Gergesa. Because it fits. It's on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, it's cliff-based, and so on. So if Cursa is, is the correct location, and Mark may have been identifying the uh, general area where this took place, not the necessarily specific town, but the general area where this was taking place. And so this is one controversy we have to address uh, with our study of this particular story, because you have three different terms appearing in our three different Gospels over various English translations. Here's what it boils down to. We don't know exactly where this happened. We don't know the exact name of the town, but that's okay. We don't have to know the exact name of the town. Let's be honest. There's probably towns whose names have been lost to history. There's prob- there could have been a Gergesa that we don't know about. It, it may not be the same place as Kursa. It's possible that they are. So we just need to accept that there, that... that, that historical detail is lost over time. It's not that big of a deal. But that's one of the controversies we have to face. The other is the number of individuals possessed by the demons. Because Matthew's account says that Jesus encountered two men possessed by demons, Mark and Luke say it was only one man. So how are we supposed to understand two versus one? Well, it's interesting because this is not the only time that Matthew mentions two individuals while the other Gospels mention only one. There's a story of a, 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 the healing of a blind individual in Mark chapter 10 and in Luke chapter 18. We know him as Bartimaeus, according to Mark's Gospel. He's set up around Jericho, and Jesus passes by. He calls out, have mercy on me, and Jesus restores his sight. Mark and Luke both refer to him as a single individual. Matthew says there were two individuals. Some believe Matthew did this on occasion. Said there were two individuals, when 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 the other gospels say one, because he was trying to make up for the fact that he wasn't including another exorcism story or another blind man being healed story. He was trying to retain the same number of individuals being healed or being exercised, you know, having a demon cast out, but he's not telling all those stories. See, it's believed Matthew's gospel came after Mark's and that a lot of his gospel was built off of Mark's gospel. Because Mark's gospel doesn't have the big teachings of Jesus. It's focused on the events of Jesus's life. And Mark has a lot more details than Matthew or Luke on much of these stories. That's why I use Mark a lot. Mark has several more verses in regards to this story than does Matthew. And so it's believed that that Matthew may be a, a great editor. And what he does is he takes Mark's account, and maybe he doesn't have time to fit in another exorcism story that Mark uses. So instead of just having one person have a demon cast out, he'll have two, so he keeps the same number of people that had demons cast out of them by Jesus as Mark had. Maybe not the same number of stories, but the same number of people. That's one um, argument that people have, uh, scholars have made as to why Matthew differs in that regard. The other argument that people made is that Matthew wants Matthew is a very um, Jewish audience concerned author, and so some contend that maybe he had multiple people have demons cast out or multiple people have their blindness restored because he cared deeply about Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15, which says that a thing must be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And maybe Matthew would say there were two individuals involved in either of those stories as a way of saying, listen, it can be, it, it's got the confirmation necessary. Now, whether or not Matthew did that, I don't know. I don't know the reason why Matthew differs along these lines, but it's worth pointing out that he has this this, this detail different than Mark and Luke. So I'm not trying to resolve those conflicts and tell you this is exactly why Matthew differs from Mark and Luke or why these terminologies are different. I'm not trying to resolve that. But I am trying to offer you the potential explanations as to why they could differ. Um, we, because we can't sit down and interview Matthew, we don't know for sure. We have educated guesses. So, with that being said, let's get to the story because I've already used up half of our class. What do we know about this unclean spirit? There are four things I want to point out this evening about this particular demon possession, if you will. First off, we know that this man was possessed by multiple demons. If you look at Mark chapter 5 and verse 9, when Jesus asked this man, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now that doesn't mean a lot to us. We understand the we are many part, but you do need to understand that a Legion, a Roman Legion, was a group of four to 6,000 soldiers during the days of Jesus. Now I don't necessarily know that that's inferring that there were four to six thousand demons in this man, I think he may just be using the term "legion" to identify that there are a lot inside this guy. And, and a legion would just uh, there, there's as figurative language would resonate with the audience of the day. So we we don't know exactly how many demons are in this guy, but we know there are multiple. Others try to make a lot out of the fact that when the demon, when Legion was cast out of this guy, he went into the herd of pigs, which had 2,000 pigs. And they surmise that, oh, it must be one demon per pig. The text doesn't say that. We don't. The, the number of pigs that die is not an indicator of how many demons were in this guy. It's just an indicator of how much bacon was lost. The other thing we know about this demon is that it caused this man to be an outcast from society. Mark chapter 5 and verse 3 tells us that this man lived in the tombs. Luke's gospel says the same thing, Luke chapter 8 verse 27, but it says for a long time he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house but among the tombs. This guy is an outcast. He is unable, because of this demon, to live in a normal town, to live in a house, to live among people. And one thing you need to understand is that by, go, by being sent out to live in a t- among the tombs, from the Jewish standpoint, and granted this is not necessarily Jewish territory, it's probably it's much more Gentile territory, evidence from the fact that they are herding pigs in Jewish culture, you don't herd pigs. Pigs are unclean. So it's more than likely this is Gentile territory, but this guy's living among dead bodies. Who in their right mind lives among dead bodies? Who lives among the skeletons? Who, who lives where burials are taking place? So this guy is an outcast. And from a Jewish perspective, he is unclean on many fronts. Number one, more than likely, he's a Gentile, so therefore he's unclean. Number two, he has a demon, so he's unclean. Number three, he's living in the proximity of dead bodies, and in the Jewish culture, you're unclean if you come in contact with dead bodies. So on all fronts, he's an outcast from society. Also consider the fact that not only is he unable to be among people— Not only is he unable to be in a house, not only is he unable to be among uh, a town, but he's not even dressed out here. He is completely uh, unclothed during this process from the, the references we have. In fact, Mark and Luke's Gospels will say when the townspeople come out and they found him clothed, they're shocked. This guy is so out of his mind and so uh, re- far removed from society that he doesn't even abide by modesty standards anymore. So this guy is a complete outcast. In addition to that, the demon empowered him with supernatural strength. This guy could not be bound with chains. This guy legitimately could break iron because of the strength he received from this demon possession. I, I, I don't know if that's because there were multiple demons or, or, or what, but he was unable, Mark chapter 5, verse 3 and 4 says, No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often, often been chained, hand and foot chained, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. That's Mark chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. So this guy had supernatural strength all because of the demon. And the, the fourth thing you should notice is that the demon or demons caused him to engage in self-injurious behavior. I've already referenced this, but he, would, he was cutting himself with stones in Mark chapter 5 and verse 5. This, this guy has everything working against him. We read about these various demon possession accounts in Scripture, and, and this guy's might be the worst— the only one that I think is comparable is the, is the, the boy who is demon-possessed because that demon caused him to have seizures and made him sometimes fall into fire, almost taking his life. And so, so both are bad. And we need to understand just how significant, how significantly compromised this guy's life is because of the presence of this demon. But the real the crux of this story to me is how people respond when Jesus casts this demon out. And I want to spend the focus of our time on that because I think that's what's significant. Here we have Jesus arriving on the shores of this area. As soon as he arrives, this demon possessed guy runs to him. The demons acknowledge Jesus, the demons fall down before Jesus. Language of worship, but I I don't know that they're worshiping him. I think it has more to do with them um, acknowledging him, at them um, uh, submitting to him, because he is a threat to them. They they immediately recognize that this is the one, and you notice that about demons, they always recognize Jesus. Uh, James is the one who tells us Uh, in James chapter 2 and verse 19, that even the demons believe and shudder. Demons always recognized Jesus and always responded to Jesus by identifying him. Sometimes Jesus would hush them. Sometimes he would just cast them out. In this instance, the, the demons are forced to recognize him. They fall at his feet. They acknowledge him. And then Jesus does cast these demons out, and the crowds will then come. We have this fascinating story, and we have unique responses in this story. A unique response to Jesus from the demons, a unique response to Jesus from the community that came out, and a unique response to Jesus from the man who has the demons cast out of him. And I want you to notice how this plays out in particular. Let's start with the demons. How did they respond to Jesus after the initial interaction where they, where they fall down before him? It's interesting because everyone begs Jesus for something. So the demons begged Jesus to send them into a herd of pigs and he granted their request. Now, we need to think for a moment, why did they make this request? Why did they ask to be sent into the herd of pigs? According to Matthew's account of this story in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 29, the first question the demons asked Jesus was, "Have you come here To torment us before the time. The demons were quite aware that a day was coming when they would be sent to a place of torment. Uh, This place is referred to as the abyss in Luke's account, Luke chapter 8 and verse 31. That term abyss is a transliteration of a Greek word that means an immeasurable depth and refers to a place where evil spirits are confined until the final judgment, such as alluded to in Matthew chapter 25 and verse, verse 41 when Jesus referred to the eternal fire as a place prepared for the devil and his angels. And it also appears to be the place described in Revelation uh, in chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 17, chapter 20, as a deep, dark shaft that is chained and locked with an angel standing guard controlling who leaves and enters. So these demons are aware that, that there is a pending judgment on them. That would be followed by pending torment. That torment is referenced in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, where we're told that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And Jude verse 6 echoes that same idea, saying the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. So the demon's chief concern here appears to be a desire to avoid facing torment. Maybe they thought their eventual torment was, res- was reserved for the time of the final judgment. But Jesus' presence indicated that, that, was, that it was already beginning. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was accused of casting out demons by Beelzebub? He said, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God, in other words, if I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus indicated there that something was changing. That with his incarnation, the kingdom of God was already breaking through in a unique way. Now, it wasn't going to be its... It's consummation. The kingdom of God's consummation didn't happen yet, or really inauguration, I should say, and consummation. Inauguration would be Acts 2 with the uh, uh, tongues of fire descending on the the upper room guests who would then uh, speak in tongues. And the final consummation of that kingdom won't come until Jesus returns. But something was happening then and there because Jesus was casting out demons. And entering the pigs in this moment may have been thought of as a win for the demons. Maybe they think if we go into the pigs, then we don't go into torment yet. But being sent into the pigs still led to their destruction. Matthew's grammar, in particular in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 32, seems to imply that the demons perished with the pigs. Here's why I say that. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 32, we're told that the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea And drown in the waters. Now, the English doesn't give anything away for you there. Grammatically, though, Matthew distinguished between the action of the herd and the consequence of that action by using singular and plural verbs in the Greek. He said that the herd rushed down. He used singular language in reference to the herd. The herd, singular, this herd, singular, rushed down. Then he said, they perished. The they there is plural. The herd was singular, the they is plural. It could be that if he was referring to the pigs as perishing, just like Mark and Luke do, then he wouldn't need to change from the singular to the plural verbs. So it may be that Matthew is implying in the Greek grammar, at least, that goes hidden in the English, that when the herd, singular, rushed into the lake, they took with them the demons who, also, who perished because of the change to a plural verb. Regardless of whether or not this grammar serves as evidence for the, demon, the demon's demise, there's no indication that these demons entered any other creature following the drowning of the pigs, which seems to indicate that their activity ceased they didn't go anywhere else so the demons think okay if we can go into this herd of pigs then we aren't going to be going to torment well jesus gave them permission to go into the pigs but that doesn't mean jesus didn't give that that does not mean that jesus simultaneously gave them permission to continue their existence so what they think is a win is jesus still controlling the circumstances jesus was always in control so, these demons, recognizing the authority of Jesus, they beg Jesus to send them into a herd of pigs, and Jesus says, Okay, I'll grant your request. Then we have the community hear about this. Those pig herders ran to town, told everybody what happened. They had just lost their whole herd and their whole income, probably. The community comes out because they've heard two things they've heard that this. this long held this this long known demon possessed guy is acting quite sanely all of a sudden and a big herd of pigs has just died they're coming out to find out if these things are true when they get out there and see this once naked self-cutting screaming demon possessed strong man sitting there calmly in clothes acting completely normal and they can see where the pigs died Maybe some of them have already floated to the surface. They're scared. It's fascinating to me because they are more scared of Jesus and the power he has just exhibited than they were of the demon-possessed guy before. The naked, unable-to-be-controlled screamer did not scare them as much as Jesus scared them. In fact, the language of their fear is is very similar to the language of the disciples' fear in the story that preceded this. That storm on the Sea of Galilee, after Jesus calmed the storm, we're told that the disciples were afraid because he had just exhibited a power they could not comprehend. Same thing's happening here. This community is terrified of Jesus, despite the fact that Jesus had just done something incredible Incredibly beautiful in restoring this guy's life. And so what, do, what does the community do? The community responds to Jesus by begging him to leave. Side note. That's the worst thing you could ever ask for. But Jesus granted their request. Jesus made plans to to leave. And then, since my time is really running out, let's go to the last individual who responds, the demon-possessed man himself. He responds, if you'll look at verse 18 and 19 of Mark 5, he responds by begging Jesus to let him go with him. He wants to follow Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. He wants to continue on with Jesus. And I'm not surprised. Nobody in this community liked him. He probably really wanted a fresh start. Maybe he wanted to go with Jesus because Jesus is the first person to ever show compassion to him. Here's where it gets fascinating. This is the one request of this whole story that Jesus does not grant. Jesus denied this guy. What? Somebody asked to follow Jesus, and Jesus said no. Does that not surprise you? Does that not sit weird with you? Jesus denies this guy's request. He says, Mark chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. I like the way one commentator summarized this. He said the request to join Jesus was not rejected. It was refocused. It's not that so much that Jesus is saying, no, you can't come with me. It's not that Jesus had a problem with this guy following him. It's that Jesus had a different task for him. Jesus instructed this man to go into his community and share the good news of what God had done for him. Now think about why Jesus would do this. That community had just rejected Jesus and told him to leave. Jesus isn't going to be sticking around to fulfill his ministry of teaching and preaching and sharing good news. But what he is going to do is he's going to leave somebody to do that that work for him. Sounds a lot like the resurrection, doesn't it? Jesus comes back, and now it's time for him to return to his home. It's time for him to ascend, and he can't stick around and teach and preach and share the good news anymore. So he gives the assignment to somebody who is going to be around. He tells this guy to start proclaiming the good news of what the Lord has done for him. That's very interesting because just a few chapters earlier, he heals a leper, and he tells that leper, "Don't tell anybody." Keep it to yourself. But he does not put any restraints on this guy because this guy is in a territory that nobody else is going to be proclaiming that good news to. Jesus never returns to this area, as far as we know from the the information we have in the Gospels. Jesus never goes back to the Gerasenes, Gadarenes, Gergesenes, whichever one it was. But this guy's there, and this guy can tell people What Jesus did in verse 20 of Mark 5 tells us he did just that. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, so that whole region of ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Now I want to wrap up with a couple of thoughts. I'm going to skip some to get to more important ones. I want you to notice that this exorcism demonstrates Jesus' concern for a single soul. Jesus here shows us how much he he cares about just one person. Jesus cured this man at the expense of pigs and thereby indicated that the cure of this man was more important than a herd of pigs. If you ever have somebody try to argue that animals are just as important as humans, listen, I'm not trying to be an anti-animal lover. I'm just saying there's a difference between animals and humans, and it's called a soul. And Jesus came to save souls. This one guy was that important to Jesus. And it's fascinating to me because you set him in contrast to the community. The community didn't care about this guy. The community didn't come out and help this guy. The community kicked this guy out left him alone. But Jesus shows up and Jesus does something for him. Jesus cares about this one individual. And he cares about you that much too. This every single individual is someone that Jesus cares about. And you know some guys just like this, the outcast who nobody else cares about, nobody else thinks about, nobody else reaches out to. There are tons and tons of people around you every day that are the outcasts of society that nobody thinks about anymore, Jesus still loves and cares for that soul. And that means we should too. And when you think about this story, I want you to remember that it illustrates the responsibility that every single follower of Jesus Christ has, and that's the responsibility to share the good news. This demon-possessed man was not allowed to continue on with Jesus because Jesus needed him to go tell other people the good news. And I love what Jesus told him to tell people. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. You know, when we think about evangelism, when we think about what what that entails, we are so focused on, I've got to have the verses right. I've got to be able to tell them exactly what the Bible says. I've got to be able to answer their theological questions. Oh, I can't do this. It's too much. Evangelism can start simply with you telling people what the Lord has done for you. And you might be sitting there thinking, I don't know what that is. Then we've got a problem. Because if you're a child of God, You should be able to tell people what the Lord has done for you because you had to make a decision based on that. The Lord has forgiven you. The Lord has reconciled you. The Lord has given you a new life. If you want to involve yourself in evangelism, you don't have to be able to answer every deep theological doctrinal question there is. Evangelism starts with you being able to tell people, here's what God did for me. Because that's what people need to hear first. They need to hear about what the Lord has done for them. And it's exactly the same thing He's done for you. So when I I come to this story, I'm often reminded of the responsibility I have to share that good news with others because that's the assignment Jesus gave this guy. so this particular story I, is so powerful. This is the, really the first uh, occasion in this study that I, I really could not fit everything into one class. This is a wonderful account in the life of Jesus that, that can easily be overlooked because we just think about, oh, demons and pigs, boom, done. There's more going on here than meets the eye. Hope you appreciate this story. Let's close out with a word of prayer. Lord God in heaven, we humbly approach you, recognizing you as the authority and our Lord and our master. And and Lord, we are grateful that we can study your word tonight and we are grateful that we can engage in this time where we reflect on what you, you have done for us. Lord, we pray tonight that you will empower us and enable us to go out and tell people what you've done for us. May we never be hesitant to speak about that. May we like this former demon-possessed man succeed at telling others about what you've done for us. Thank you for your son and the life he lived and the lessons we can learn from it, but most of all, thank you for his sacrifice and what that has done for us. May we never take it for granted. We love you, Lord, and it's through the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.